Uh, three weeks ago, the pastor gave a sermon in which he talked about faith. But he approached it from the perspective of the five solas that derived from Protestant Reformation. He spoke from the perspective of sola fide. I'm going to approach it from the perspective of what Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, says. And as always, we have to put it into context. To whom was Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, directed? And why was it written? I think the answer of to whom it was directed is quite easy to see. It's in the title of the book, Hebrews. It was directed towards Hebrew Christians who had accepted the new faith, who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But why was it written? Well, as, as you know from the book of Acts, at the time of Pentecost, the Jews gathered together. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. People spoke in tongues. The visiting Jews heard the gospel in their own languages. And many were impressed, and 3,000 were baptized. And subsequently, in various parts of Acts, there are other rel relations of baptism taking place among the Jews. But now it's many years later, and what has happened? Jews have grown weary of struggling against temptation. They wanted to, many of them wanted to return to the old familiar ways of life, the comfortable heritage that they enjoyed for so many different years. And look at it. The Jews had a wonderful, magnificent temple. The early Christian church didn't. The Jews had lots of magnificent rituals. The early Christian church didn't. And as we know, rituals are a way of including people, of making them feel that they belong. And the Jews missed these kinds of rituals. They came to regard the old ways as more and more attractive compared with the struggles they were facing with their new religion. And that is something that I think we, we, we can uh, sympathize with. It's not just a problem that existed at that time. It's a problem which still exists today. In other words, they'd lost the keen edge of their earlier conviction. And Jesus referred to this in the parable of the sowers. Some seed is sown on rock. People believe, but after time, with the pressures and temptations of life, they drift away. And that is what is happening, happening to the Jews. And we have to bear in mind that they were suffering from persecution. Uh, Paul wasn't the only one who persecuted the Christian believers. There were others. And so the Jews were having issues related to their faith. And so Hebrews addressed the concerns of the Jewish faithful, the Jewish Christians. And Hebrews responded in a way that argued and demonstrated that Christianity is better in every way to their previous religion. There's a better sanctuary, a better priesthood, a better sacrifice, a better covenant, a better promise. And it's interesting to note that in the arguments that the writer of Hebrews uses, he not only argues that it's better, 
he argues that this all came before the traditions of Judaism. For example, the Jews like to say that they have a priesthood and that Jesus' priesthood came afterwards. Hebrews argues that that's not the case. The priesthood of Jesus Christ came before the priesthood that was part of the tradition of the Jews. And we need to bear that in mind. So Hebrews is going to show and demonstrate, the book of Hebrews, that there's a positive example that, Jew, that Jewish Christians could follow. It shows that there's much more to life than the physical things that they thought they enjoyed in life. Much more to life than things that can be touched and tasted and heard. And it demonstrated, and it demonstrates that people of faith can look to God's promises because God's promises are never unreasonable. As we see in our scripture verse, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, begins with a kind of definition of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. Now this is not the kind of theological definition which relates faith to grace and righteousness which Paul argues so eloquently in his various letters. This is more to set the framework of what the rest of the chapter is going to say. And it has two parts, Hebrews 11.1. The conviction of things not seen. None of us has seen creation, but we only have to look around to know that it exists. Look at the wondrous beauties of nature that God has provided to us. And even if we had been there at the time of creation, we would never have seen it. Why? Hebrews 11.3 explains it. The world was not created out of any visible matter. The world was created by the word of God. We have that faith. We sometimes hear people talking about blind faith. And yes, we see by faith, not by sight. But our faith is not blind. We know God in our lives. We've experienced miracles and blessings. We have felt the presence of the Holy Spirit guiding us and directing us and comforting us and helping us. We have this evidence of our faith. But faith is also the assurance of things hoped for. Now, normally when we talk about hope, it's kind of a wishy-washy, wishful thinking, desire, maybe sort of thing. You know, along the lines of, well, I studied really hard in this course, but I don't know all the material, so I hope I pass the exam. Or another example, I've done a really good job this year in my work. I've been punctual, I've completed all my assignments, so I really hope I get a promotion. And then, of course, there's the whole idea of forlorn hope. And actually, it's quite interesting that forlorn hope in its original definition had nothing whatsoever to do with hope as we understand it. It's a term that arose in the 1500s and the 1600s, but was actually in common usage during the early 1800s in the Peninsular War when Wellington was fighting against the French in Spain. What the forlorn hope was, 
was a small military group whose purpose was to take explosives up to the wall of a city under siege, blow a hole in the wall so that the British troops in this case could go through the breach and take the city. So you have a small group of men with explosives running up to the wall of a besieged city and everybody on the wall knows what's going to happen, so they're shooting at them. So what do you think the chances of people surviving that were? That's why we morphed into a common definition of forlorn hope. But let me give you an example from my personal experience about what is a forlorn hope. Uh, I grew up in Winnipeg, and it's a great city. Has anybody been to Winnipeg? Great city, right? <laughs> it's a great city. But when I was growing up, there was only one sports team in Winnipeg, and that was the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And uh, so you're sitting in the Winnipeg Stadium, and it's early November, and it's freezing cold out. Any of you who've been to Winnipeg knows how cold it gets. And Winnipeg Blue Bombers are playing their arch rivals, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And it's in the fourth quarter, and there's about five minutes left in the game. Now, because it's freezing cold and because the score is so one-sided, a lot of people have left. The stadium's pretty empty. But down the end of your row, there's a Saskatchewan fan. And he's got on his green toque and his green scarf and his green mitts. And he looks down at you at the other end, wearing your blue toque and your blue scarf and your blue mitts. And he says, boy, I hope the Saskatchewan can make a big comeback and win this game. Now that's a pretty forlorn hope, isn't it? <laughs> But our hope is not forlorn. We have certainty. We know that our hope is going to be realized. That is why we can sing in hymn 214, we have this hope. Because we have the hope, the certainty of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have the hope and the certainty of our salvation. We have the hope and certainty of reaching the heavenly kingdom. It is not a maybe, it is a definite, it will happen that is our hope. And that is the introduction to what most of Hebrews 11 is about. Most of Hebrews 11 is a presentation of heroes of faith. And the heroes of faith rely on that definition. They had the assurance of things not hoped for. They had the conviction of things not seen. I'm not going to go over all of the heroes. I'm just going to go over some of them. But it starts with Abel and Cain. Now, I have a confession to make. When I first read the Bible, I had real difficulty in understanding why Cain's offering wasn't acceptable. And it wasn't just on first reading. It was second and third. I, I had real difficulty. It wasn't clear to me why Cain's offering was not acceptable to God. And I'm not the only one who had that feeling. A number of commentators in speaking about the issue of faith in Hebrews 11 say, well, Abel, that's not much of an example of faith. You know, why is that included? There's nothing there. But I think that we have to look a little further, a little more deeply at it in order to understand it. What was Abel's offering? Sorry, what was it? Abel, Abel, a lamb. And what does a lamb foretell? Jesus Christ. 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So let's look at it further. When you offer a lamb, what happens to it? It's killed. Gets its neck cut. So there's blood. And what happened with Jesus Christ? He died. His blood was spilled. So we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And that's what the faith issue is as it relates to Abel. Abel made an offering in faith of the redemptive power of God. But let's look at something else. Abel gave his, his offering the lamb in faith that God would accept it. What did Cain do? Cain planted a crop. Cain weeded a crop. Cain watered a crop. Cain harvested a crop. And then Cain gave a crop. Faith, Abel, works Cain. So now we see that issue a little more clearly, I hope. But it's interesting that he starts, the Hebrew starts with Abel because that comes right after the eviction of Eve and Adam from the Garden of Eden. So it shows that faith was there from the very beginning of the Bible. So let's move on and look at, uh, at Noah. Noah himself found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was blameless. He walked with God. So what did God do? He asked Noah to build an ark. He said there was a flood coming. So Noah built an ark on dry land, far from the sea, with no indication anywhere that there was going to be a flood or rain or anything like that. And Peter talks about how there will be scoffers and skeptics. And we have scoffers and skeptics today. But you can imagine there were scoffers and skeptics back when Noah was building his ark. Can you imagine the comments that they made to him? Can you imagine all the jokes they made about this madman building an ark somewhere? But, but he continued out of faith. And then he was told to board the ark. And what happened to all these scoffers and skeptics? That's worth bearing in mind today, by the way. We, too, need to prepare. And then let's look at Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, Abraham is instructed to leave his home, his kinfolk, and journey to a far land where God will make him a great nation. So Abraham was going to a place he did not know and a place he had never seen. And if you look at the map of his journey, it's quite a long one. He went from basically southern, what is currently southern Iraq, northeast, almost to Turkey, then came south, stopped off in the promised land. There was a famine, you remember. He went on to Egypt, and then he came back again. And it's interesting to note that he had faith in the promise that he would inherit something in the Holy Land, even though he did not inherit it directly. And that's something like our Christian journey, isn't it? We are journeying towards a land we have not seen and we do not know. We take that journey out of faith. In Genesis 17, 18, we have the talk of Abraham receiving a son. 
a promise of a son through Sarah, his wife. Now that's something that's impossible, or was thought to be impossible. Sarah was barren. Abraham was old and described as almost dead. So how could he have a son? He could have a son because God promised. But you'll notice in Genesis 17 that when told of this promise, Abraham laughed inside. And in Genesis 18, when Sarah was told of this promise, she laughed inside. So some people might say, well, that isn't showing an awful lot of faith, is it? But I think there's a lesson here. Faith does not come like that. In the case of Paul, Paul's conversion, his coming to faith was immediate. But for many people, it is not immediate. It comes. It's a progression. We talk about our walk towards righteousness is a progression, step by step. And that's the same with faith as well. And what is it that God said when, uh, when Sarah left? What, what are the words that he said? Well, you all know that, but anyway. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And what is the answer? No. Anything is possible with the Lord. And then we look at Abraham and Isaac. God had promised that he would work through Isaac. That the promise would be fulfilled through Isaac. And yet then he subsequently commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on the mountaintop. So what is the choice there? What is the choice that Abraham had? Very simple, to obey or to disobey. Now there's an interesting point in that story. When Abraham leaves the servants behind and goes up to the mountain with Isaac, he says, we will go alone, but the boy and I will return. Abraham had faith that whatever the sacrifice that he had been asked to make, his son would come back. And that faith was realized, as we know, when a substitute was provided for Isaac on the mountaintop. And you may ask, why is Hebrews discussing all these different heroes? Why are they presenting them? It's because the people to whom the book of Hebrews was directed needed to show, needed to see that there were examples of people who lived by faith so that they themselves could also live by the same faith. Let's move on to Moses. Now Moses is held in very high esteem by the Jewish people, even today. Moses, of course, was the bringer of law and the bringer of tradition to which the Jews commonly referred to. So in addressing the audience of Jewish Christians, the writer of Hebrews placed great emphasis on the faith that Moses had. And actually the faith that Moses had came before he really got going, as it were. You remember that the Pharaoh had originally asked the midwives to do away with newly born Jewish babies, and because they believed in God, they didn't do it. But then Pharaoh gave the order that all of the newborn babies were to be killed. Well, Moses' parents did not allow their child to be killed. They kept Moses for three months before they put him in the basket and put him in the river. So they showed faith in what God wanted, not the commands 
of Pharaoh. Later on, Moses was growing up in the Egyptian court. Some people have suggested that he could even have made it to be Pharaoh, but if not, he was pretty high up in the Egyptian court. He enjoyed all the worldly goods and powers of somebody in a position of privilege in the Pharaoh's court. But he left that. He went back to God's people. He went back to suffer with God's people, to be mistreated with God's people, because he had the promise that God would look after his people. He had that faith. And remember Passover. What happened in Passover? Remember, he was instructed to put the blood of the lamb on the doors of the houses so that the, uh, the, the children therein would not be killed. And he did so. And that must be an act of faith because he did not know that the angel would come. And if the angel did come, he could not have been sure that the angel would not ignore the markings and kill all the children anyway. He acted out of faith, faith in the word of God. And of course, we have the episode of crossing of the Red Sea. The Pharaoh's army is behind. The Red Sea is in front. What's your hope? Your only hope is faith in the word of God that he would provide a passage. And he did. And let's look at one last example, which actually has two components. Let's look at what happened at Jericho. Remember Joshua and the siege of Jericho? So what were the instructions? Well, you march around the city for six days, once each day. On the seventh day, you march around six times, and you've got the trumpets, the priests with the trumpets going before the ark, and on the seventh time around, the priests will blow their trumpets, and when you hear a really, really loud and long blow, you start shouting, and the walls will fall down. Well, isn't that the silliest thing you've ever heard of? Isn't that an absolutely ridiculous story? Don't we all know that trumpets and voices don't blow down walls? Hey, but what happened? The walls came down. By the faith of God, they carried out what God had instructed them to do, and it was realized. But there's another part about Jericho. Remember Rahab? The prostitute? Remember she helped out the spies and kept them hidden and then misdirected the, uh, the soldiers who were looking for them? And what was it that, that Rahab said? Your God is the God of heaven above and earth below. So Rahab was saved because she had faith in God. And that example is a particularly pertinent one for the audience which Hebrews addresses. And why is that? Simple. If you have a Gentile who's a prostitute who can exhibit this kind of faith, then how much more will it be possible for you who have found Christ, tasted the grace of God, demonstrate the same kind of faith? Now, just in case you're thinking that this is really positive, you've got all these examples of faith, victorious faith. Hebrews 11 concludes with, with a warning. There is no promise that those who are faithful will be spared from suffering. And we only have to look at the history. 
Hebrews deals with New Test- Old Testament events, but look at the New Testaments. Stephen was stoned. Paul was imprisoned, beaten, stoned, and eventually killed. Peter was hung up, was crucified upside down on a cross. Actually, all of the apostles, at least according to the stories except John, met a similar fate. The early Christians were prosecuted by the Roman Empire. The Waldenses were persecuted, scattered, and massacred. John Huss and other reformers were martyred. The Huguenots in France were killed. So faith is no guarantee of comfort in this world. But there is a guarantee of a better reward. And that is something that Revelation in the Bible reminds us of. We will suffer in this world, but we have something greater that is coming to us. So when we look at the totality of this particular chapter, what are some of the lessons that we can learn from it? other than those we've mentioned. Number one, you have to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We have to understand and learn that faith is patient. God always comes through, but we cannot demand or expect immediate action from God. God works on his own timetable. God knows what is best. We don't. God does. We have to recognize, too, that faith, though it can sometimes be halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. Those who have faith, who persevere, who endure the suffering, will enter into God's rest. And finally, let us remember this. God wants us to have faith because he is faithful. Thank you very much and God bless.